says one author, Vainglory is a sin which has no opposing virtue with which to fight it. Vainglory is doing good things, but doing them to win honor for yourself without regard to the praise of God and the good of one's neighbor. Vainglory is on the list of the seven deadly sins that comes out of the Eastern Church, and it comes to the West, and in the transition of culture and language and from Latin then to English, we have lost certain sins, even the... (laughs) For instance, the sin of dejection or axity, acedia in the Latin, uh, became sloth in English, and sloth used to have the connotations that that acedia in the Latin had. But today, we've lost that that word has lost that meaning. So we've dropped some things along the way. Vainglory is one of those sins that we have lost. It kind of got swallowed up with pride. But the Eastern Church early on said, well, these are sort of two different sins. Uh, I can't go into it further uh, because I want to talk about vainglory. Um, Our author is right on the second count, but perhaps a bit too pessimistic on the first. Vainglory, the sin in the crosshairs today, uh, if, if we were... Uh, particularly to look at what the early church uh, gave. The, the early church gave us the lectionary, and I've been preaching on this a little bit lately, uh, the readings for the Sundays to go through the threefold order of purgation, illumination, union with Christ. That is the ancient prescription for how to heal our sin sick selves. And the early church set it up so that you go through the seven deadly sins three times. Once with the idea of purgation, once with the idea of illumination of the Spirit, once with the idea of illumination of union with Christ. So today, the sin in the crosshairs is vain glory. It is a difficult sin to fight. One scholar describes vainglory this way vainglory is showing to others that you are really good, it is the mother of pride. It thrives on our desire to be esteemed, loved, extolled, honored, praised, preferred, consulted, popular, all in the name of doing good. It puffs up at the sight of having many virtues. You can see, I hope, that this sin is difficult to fight because it exalts itself when you are doing good works, which we are called to do. St. John Climacus helps us to understand, like the sun which shines on all alike, vainglory beams on every occupation. What I mean is this, I fast and I turn vainglorious. I stop fasting so that I will draw no attention to myself and I become vainglorious over my prudence. I dress well or badly and am vainglorious in either case. I talk or I remain silent and each time I am defeated. No matter how I shed this prickly thing, a spike remains to stand up against me. 
When we are vainglorious, we are wanting the praise. We are wanting the honor. We are wanting the glory. Of course, we want to fight this sin by inculcating virtue. The two most obvious virtues that fight vainglory, an intellectual sin, by the way, are the theological virtue of faith and the cardinal virtue of prudence or wisdom. Going back to that first pessimistic statement about the lack of a virtue opposed to vainglory, listen to what Edward Shree says. Magnanimity and vainglory are directly opposed to each other. The vain person is more concerned about receiving the praise of men than he is about living a truly praiseworthy life. Whereas the magnanimous person seeks to do good and live an honorable life, even if he is never, ever noticed. Such a virtuous man can be confident that even if no one on earth notices his righteous deeds, his heavenly Father sees and will reward him. So magnanimity, defined like he did, is a virtue that we can inculcate to oppose vainglory. Noah Webster in his famous 19th century dictionary defined magnanimity, magnanimity, it's got more than three syllables, I'm in trouble. He defines it this way, greatness of mind, that elevation or dignity of soul which encounters danger and trouble with tranquility and firmness, which raises the possessor above revenge and makes him delight in acts of benevolence which makes him disdain injustice and meanness and prompts him to sacrifice personal ease, interest and safety for the accomplishment of useful and noble objects. Aristotle thought that magnanimity was the virtue of a great man. Spencer in his Fairy Queen has King Arthur representing magnificence which is generally understood to be referring to Aristotle's magnanimity. You can see how magnanimity would fight against vainglory, can't you? It is a virtue that has a higher and more noble objective than self. Vainglory is all about the self, while seeming to be virtuous. Magnanimity cares for the noble object, cares for virtue itself, and disdains the siren call of pride and appetite. Lewis says in his Abolition of Man that he would sooner play cards against a man who was quite skeptical about ethics, but bred to believe that a gentleman does not cheat, than against an irreproachable moral philosopher who had been brought up among sharpers. Lewis is always good for a great quote, right? He goes on to note, recalling Plato's teaching in his Republic, that the head rules the belly through the chest, the seat of magnanimity, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it is by this middle element that man is man. For by his intellect he is is mere spirit, and by his appetite, mere animal. 
when we have trained our chests, when we have inculcated the virtues that help us to live good lives as defined by God's holy scriptures, then we have stable sentiments, which will help us to rule our wills by those virtues. We will not by nature, but by second nature, choose the good, the true, and the beautiful. Let us never think, though, that we can do this on our own. Ultimately, our success comes through God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We are God's creatures, and we are redeemed creatures at that. We are called to this bodily life. We are given the direction and the teaching of what that holy life is to look like, and we are also, by God's grace, given the means to attain that holy life. We are living lives of union with Christ. Yes, in reality, in our baptism, in our confirmation, in our continued life in the church, through word and sacrament. Yet it is also something we pursue, that union with Christ. Union with Christ is the third of the threefold way of pursuing God and is central to St. Paul's passage to the Corinthians in our epistle today. He refers in verse 4 to the grace of God which was given to the Corinthians by Christ. He notes that Christ enriched them in everything in all utterance and in all knowledge. And he notes that the testimony of Christ was confirmed in them and that they are eagerly waiting for the revelation of their Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm them to the end. Christ is their life. Christ will confirm them to the end. Union with Christ is everything. It comes through continued life in the church as we grow into that union more and more day by day. Magnanimity is one way to express the virtue of a sentiment and action, the reality that Christ is in us and we are in him. My friends, let us run from vainglory and into the everlasting arms of Christ Jesus, moment by moment throughout each and every day, that our actions may be void of reference to ourselves, and that our actions may be only for the truth, goodness, and beauty, and the glory of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.